So let's, uh, now let's continue on to the word. We are in the book of Colossians and up to this point, this is our fourth, fourth week in the book of Colossians, up to this point, uh, Paul has been mounting, you know, it, uh, under, the, under the idea that a good, uh, the best defense is a good offense. He's been mounting uh, a, an argument of like why Christ is, is, uh, is above all things, why Christ why Jesus is more beautiful than anything else in the universe. Uh, and, and now today he's going to get into the nitty-gritty of what's actually going on in this church. He's kind of hinted at it, and we've hinted at it and spoke to it a little bit. But Paul, being a good minister, you know, when you want to criticize somebody, what do you do? You first tell them, like, you affirm them, affirm all the good things about them, and then, then you get down to it and you say, here's the issues. And so today, Paul's going to take us to school uh, and, and share with us what's happening in the Colossian church. Uh, and as, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, so what's affecting them is also very similar to things that affect us. So let's, if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Uh, this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Let's pay attention uh, to God's inerrant word. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." And if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. 
let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for, Lord, our, our foolish minds are constantly making things up and adding things. And Lord, we are prone to wander and even take good things and misuse them for, for our own uh, sensuous uh, enjoyment and ways and making us make Christianity all about us and not all about you. So we pray, Lord, that as we work through this text today, you'll show us about how all these things are just really all about us that you're pointing out here, all these practices, and instead help us to understand uh, that we have been rooted in Christ. Our roots are already been, we've been planted, we've been transplanted, and our roots are deep in the nourishing soil of Jesus, uh, being nourished with the very life of God through our union with him, and that that is all we need, Lord. I pray you would help us to see that and to trust you in the work that you are doing in and through us by your spirit so that we might be lights in the world, Lord. So we pray that you would illuminate our minds, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as, we, uh, as you pr- promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be, please be seated. <clears throat> At some point in my uh, semi-early Christian life, maybe this was like five, six, seven years in, can't actually remember, Someone shared with me a book that I have since had this love-hate relationship with. Uh, I love it because I recognize the, the truth of it and the freeing nature of the truth. However, I kind of hate it because it, it takes away things that I kind of want to be true of Christianity. In, in my case, things that have to do with mysticism and, and all the like ideals of uh, all, all the ideals and principles and practices of Eastern mysticism that I used to really be into before I became a Christian, I had kind of imported and you know, brought along with me into the church and found that they were already also prevalent and being practiced in the church. Uh, and this book kind of takes some of those away from me and so it kind of feels like uh, something's been taken away from me. And so, uh, however, again, I'm blessed and benefit by the truth of it. I want to share with you, there's 10 chapters in this book, and to start out, I want to like lay out the, t- the top four and see if you don't like have a love-hate relationship with this just based on the, the title, the chapter titles, okay? So here, here we go. The first four, uh, the top four are this. First one is why, it's, the book is called Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. And the idea is like showing us like stuff that we do that we wrap ourselves around the axle in that really uh, aren't super Christian. <laughs> Let me read them and see if this offends you. <laughs> Number one, why you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart <laughs> or how God really speaks to us today through his word. I hate that one. I hate that one because there's like this sense of comfort that comes when like I don't know what to do and I can like quiet my mind and listen to the inner voice of God to speak to me. And yet I'm really, what am I listening to? I'm listening to my corrupt heart. Number two, why you don't have to believe your intuitions are the Holy Spirit. That one's going to leave a mark. (laughs) Man, I hate that one because I, you know, I... 
Sometimes life is confusing. Sometimes decisions are confusing and difficult. And rather than taking the long-term approach that we've been talking about of like immersing myself in God's word and letting like his wisdom of the way creation works and how the law is and what his character is like and what produces love, taking the long-term approach of like immersing my things in the, myself in those so that I become wiser, I like want like magic. I want like the intuition to be the voice of the Holy Spirit so I can make these snap decisions and then, you know, feel like I'm very close to God. Number three, why you don't have to find God's will for your life or how faith seeks wisdom, what I just talked about. You don't have to find God's will for your life in every decision. Instead, over the course of time, as we know his word better, we grow in wisdom and we make better decisions. And four, uh, why you don't have to keep getting transformed all the time. Now, that's a big one, right? In in kind of like in the hype, in our culture, in this day and age, uh, you know, we hype everything and trying to compete with worldly entertainment. Like, every service has to be transformational. Every, like, you know, every Christian event has to be a transformational experience. And so people, like, uh, you know, you look for that. It's like a big dopamine hit. You're coming to be transformed in the course of an evening rather than the long game of God through wisdom, cultivating virtues in our hearts, which then ends up transforming us from the inside out over the course of time. Right, so I hate that because it takes some of the magic, you know, uh, that I want to be in Christianity out of Christianity, but it ultimately, it replaces them with something far better. Uh, We could add to that. We could add to that why you don't have to update the Bible to modern sensibilities or how it is uh, that revelation is greater than our fallen reason. We could add to that why you don't have to intentionally cause yourself to suffer for suffering's sake or why life is already hard enough and God works in and through that. Uh, Now, you might ask yourself, like, why? So why why would someone even need to write this book? And the reason is pretty obvious. All of those practices um, and all those ideals have snuck their way into the church. The fancy word for it is cultural syncretism. As the church exists in the world uh, and in the atmospheric pressure of the world, as the world ideas about religion, about ethics, about life, just almost, you know, just are always pushing in on the church and, and expecting the church Uh, expecting us, the world always expects us to change according to the times or the world, um, you know, offers these enticing and exciting spiritual practices from other traditions and they just kind of work their way into the church and over the course of decades become common practice and no one even really remembers or knows that these things aren't really Christian practices and yet they're, everybody does them. And so this guy wrote this book to really free people up because those things also like pin people down. Those things also cause people a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, they, also, they, they create a lot of a trouble in the church, right? And so the idea that foreign ideals, uh, other you know, practices from other religions, um, or you know, our sinful ideals are infiltrating the church and, and becoming part in practice, of the church is a constant threat and we always need to be aware of it and on guard. And what's fascinating really about this passage that we just read 
and this idea is that things never really change that much. The same things that the Colossians were experiencing uh, that were coming into their church are the same things that we experience coming into our church as well. The flavor of it might change a bit, but the categories are the same. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, that's why it's so helpful for us to look at this passage. And here, in, in it, Paul's making a simple comparison. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay it out like this. This is the big idea of this passage. Is that the spiritual junk food of the world cannot compare to the spiritual nourishment we receive in Christ. Simple comparison. The spiritual junk food of the world can't compare with the spiritual nourishment that we receive in Christ. So let's look at that one part at a time. First, let's look at the spiritual junk food of the world. Does anybody, anybody remember, anybody who is a, you know, I remember in the 80s, I think it started in the 80s, this, this huge diet fad where uh, they, you, people believed that low-fat, low-fat diet was a healthy diet. I remember, I remember distinctly watching like the 80s, early 90s infomercials. You guys remember the infomercials that would go for like an hour and a half at night? There was this woman named Susan Powder, super dynamic, super charismatic, and I still remember her like looking into the camera and saying, food doesn't make you fat, fat makes you fat. And I was like, duh, doesn't make so much sense. Of course fat makes me fat, right? And so what happened? What happened, what happened was uh, anything that had a low-fat label on it was considered to be health food, even though it was chock full of sugar, empty calories, carbohydrates, every other chemical under the sun, and, and literally science had hijacked people, kidnapped them into believing that health food was junk food. And the end result was heart, heart disease and obesity just skyrocketed because of this wrong idea, this wrong diet that science had introduced into the church. And same thing uh, is happening spiritually to the Colossians. It's not like, this isn't like, in, in Galatia, Paul like is very firm with the adversaries that he's running against. And so we, don't, we think that in, in, in Galatia, there was these practices that they were engaging in that was like, that was endangering their salvation. In Colossians, Paul is a lot softer. So we think these are practices that people had introduced, this spiritual junk food into the practice of the church that was causing, they thought was bringing them closer to God, but actually wasn't. It wasn't doing them any good, and it was distracting them from, from Jesus. Uh, and so just like, uh, there are four big categories of what was happening in the Colossian church, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use them by the names that we would call them. It's Paul uses some of the same words. Rationalism, mysticism, asceticism, and legalism. Four big isms that have always plagued the church, then and now. Rationalism, Paul says, you know, don't be taken captive by philosophy or by empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Philosophy just means human wisdom, the best of our own thinking, uh, according to uh, you know, the human traditions of thought. Uh, and elemental spirits, really Paul is taking a shot at it. He's saying these are basic, these are basic principles of the material world, try, and trying to use those to understand 
The spiritual world is foolishness. It's empty deceit, he says. Now, you know, it used to be, used to be that people thought of the upper world, the world of the heavens, as the primary world. And then the lower world of creation that we live in, the visible creation, was thought of as the lower world. They even called it the upper register and the lower register. And for forever, people, the, the role of the, lower, of the lower world was to try to figure out, and this was everybody, pagans included, try to figure out what was, uh, what was true according to the upper world and then bring ourselves into conformity with that. But things then switched around. And people began to see the lower world the world of creation, the visible world is the true world and the upper world as a myth, as not even existing whatsoever. And so the idea of using something like revelation of God's word as our primary source of knowledge has become to the, come to the point where it's utter foolishness in our day. Utter foolishness in our day. And yet, you know, what's, what's, as I, when I study philosophy, what's fascinating to me is from all the way from Plato all the way through the philosophers, uh, all the way up to modern like philo philosophers of religion. If you read them, they all have this longing for, I wish there was some point in time where we could clearly see God breaking into the world and acting in some way, because if that happened, then we would have like an anchor, a solid anchor to, to reality as it truly is, and then we could reason from that point. And yet that's what revelation is. Uh, the idea of rationalism or philosophy, is, uh, to put it in a sentence, is, is it's the insistence, it's putting our, our fallen reason above revelation as, a, as the ultimate source of knowledge. Uh, and, saying, and saying to ourselves that, our, that the revelation of God, what God has revealed about himself in the word and in creation has to uh, submit itself to the, our current ideals of religion, of God, of ethics. Uh, and you know, the, what, what's so sad about that is it takes the anchor of God. It takes the anchor of God as the source of all creation, as the source of all knowledge, as the source of all uh, ethics, and it eliminates it so that people are then free-floating, trying to figure out what's true, what's moral, What's good, what's wrong, what's, what's good, what's bad? And we're in the position that we're in now when nobody agrees and nobody knows because there's no center. There's no anchor point from which we can reason from. And so that idea, that rationalism, it's not something that we experience. It's always been, always been pushing its way into the church. Second, mysticism. Uh, no, this is my favorite. <laughs> I love, like I said in, in the intro, I love the idea of, of, of religion being a mystical encounter with God. And on one hand, it is. When we have the Lord's Supper, we, we say, we say in our, you know, in our, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we say that the Lord's Supper is a mystical experience with God. Um, However, it's a mystical experience through the word and through the mediation of God so that we're tethered to the reality. We're tethered to the word. We're tethered 
to, uh, you know, to what God says. There's things that we can't explain about it, and there's things that God promises in it that we can't explain or understand. And so we can say rightly that we are in a, we are in a mystical experience and an encounter with the holy God when in the preaching of the word right now, God's speaking to us through his word and in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and that's awesome. God has given us mysticism to be part of the church, mystery. However, you know, as humans, fallen humans, we always want to push that envelope, right? Push that envelope into, into being not a mystical experience where we are communing with God through Jesus as the mediator, but instead we're just communing with God personally outside of Jesus without any need for Jesus in that, in that encounter. And, uh, you know, that causes, in, in the Colossians day, they were, you know, going on, you know, going on and on about the visions that they had had, and, and that same kind of thing happens today, where people are convinced uh, and they make decisions, life decisions based on what they believe God has told them in their heart or what they are absolutely convinced of is the Holy Spirit's leading. Whether or not it, it's in, whether or not it's in, uh, you know, it's, it agrees with the word of God. And it's, it's not, it, that's bad. It, it causes all kinds of trouble. Not the smallest of which is that people, when you get it, hold, when you grab onto that, the feeling of direct connection with God can be so seductive that it's hard to let go of, even when the decisions you're making based on it are crushing your life. And so, in, you know, in pastoral ministry, it's one of the hardest things to deal with are people who are like stuck in these terrible situations and they can't get out of it, not because they can't like get out of it, but because they're so, they're so intent on holding on to that belief that God told them to do this, that they can't back out and say, gosh, I made a mistake. Third one, asceticism, which means basically harsh treatment of the body uh, in order to suffer uh, for religious reasons, that the suffering of purposefully treating ourselves harshly creates a closer connection with God or somehow earns more of God's favor or somehow uh, enhances our experience and our relationship with God. And, and so there are some things, you know, Christian fasting, there's a, there's a tradition in, in the Bible that talks about fasting, there's a place for it. But it can get, we can take that and then get it way out of hand, right? I remember we used to belong to a church that we used to do big fasts. We used to do big 21-day fasts, and there was always the people that would go 40 days with the fast, and they would make sure that everybody knew about it. You know, they'd be laying in the chair. We'd all be <laughs> at our group meeting, and they'd be like laying in the chair, almost passing out, and, uh, you know, all the people were coming over and consoling and comforting them and <laughs> making a big show of it, Right? And so the idea of harshly treating the body, it's not just fasting. I mean, it can go to crazy extremes. Uh, it can go to crazy extremes. There are sects and cults that will walk around whipping themselves. There's a cult in the Philippines where people literally crucify themselves on Easter. There's a, there's a, a Roman Catholic uh, society called Opus Dei, and they will take these like pointed, like, uh, like 
claw, uh, what do you call them, those dog collars with the prongs on the inside, and they'll crank it down on their thigh underneath their suit while they're off to work in excruciating pain, believing that this is somehow bringing them closer to God. But it could be a lot of different things, right? It could be the hyper-minimalism. It could be like uh, anything, where, anything where your spiritual practice is causing hardship in your life and then you use that hardship to elevate yourself above the rank-and-file Christians that are in the church. Now we've had friends, Nisa's had friends that were like got on staff with certain college ministries and they were living on $12,000 a year and, and there became this sense where there was this elevated, there was the super Christians who were suffering for Jesus in all these special ways known to everyone and then there was the regular rank and file Christians. To the point where some people had even come to Nisa and say, you, you can't be a Christian and work a normal job. You just can't. You can't do it. Why? Because they had so, they had taken that idea of, of harsh treatment of self and suffering and denial to the point where they all of a sudden started to believe that it was required. It was a necessary part of salvation because that's where our fallen minds go. And finally, uh, Legalism, good old-fashioned legalism. Paul talks about questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. There seems to have been some element of of Jewish law that had seeped into the, the, the new church in Colossae as well, and people were believing that you had to, in some ways, at least observe these old regulations of the Old Testament in order to be saved. And that could be translated into anything, any rule or any regulation or any ritual that's required on top of Jesus and his work for us for salvation. And they may be a formal ideal, they may be a formal doctrine in certain churches, but you know, we can all be susceptible to that. We all wake up, I, this funny joke, I, always, I, wake, I wake up every morning you know, as a semi-Arminian, which means I wake up every morning thinking that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've displeased God and I'm going to lose my salvation, or that something I do or don't do is going to cause, uh, is going to break my relationship with God. But what is that? What is that? When I do that, what am I doing? I'm adding. I'm adding like how well I do in a certain day, uh, as part of you know whether God loves me. And then, I'll, you know, then I take that and twist it into like a manipulating tactic, right? If I do really good, if I get up and I'm doing my devotions well every morning and I've like, you know, managed to, you know, be up, you know, avoid temptation. I've been, you know, good to the kids and nice to Nisa all week. I forget the end of the week and I'm like, I got some credit points. I got some credit points. Man, I would, God, I would really, I would really like to do this and I'd like to cash in my points. Y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And listen, all four of those things, they have certain things in common, right? They all, what do they all look? They all seem to be super religious. So much so that we, like the, you know, the ultra fasting thing, people can fly that flag and use it as status in the church. Look at me, I'm ultra religious. I'm one of the super Christians. They look super religious. However, Paul says 
They're all about you. He calls them sensuous. That's so crazy to think about how like law keeping can be sensuous, how uh, behavior modification can be sensuous, how denying ourselves can be sensuous, but it's sensuous in that it appeals to the flesh. It's all about you, your mind, your reason, your ability to think things through, your special connection with God, your sacrifice, your good works. It's all about you, which necessarily means it diminishes or distorts or dilutes the person and work of Jesus in our everyday lives. Isn't that crazy? And here's the zinger. Paul says, they have no value. They're self-made religion, and they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. Because they are indulging the flesh. (laughs) And you know what they do? They create ticking time bombs. They create ticking time bombs of people who are likely or very possibly could blow up at some point in the future. You know, and the scary, really the other scary part of this is that these ideas, all these things, rationalism has snuck into the church You know, so much so that like entire denominations have fallen into the abyss of believing that our fallen human wisdom trumps or is smarter and wiser than God's revelation. When I started seminary, 2009, the uh, PCUSA, the main Presbyterian denomination, had three million members, and over the course of uh, seven years, eight years, they it went to 1.5. They lost half of their membership. Separated from the, from the vine, the branch can do nothing. Uh, all these ideas, uh, you know, rationalism, mysticism, asceticism, legalism, have snuck into the church over the course of time, slowly, and become, like, over generations, have the, it's, it's been forgotten where they came from and they've become into the teaching institutions of the church. And so we're at the point where it's not just practices in the church that are the problem. Uh, it's not just that this spiritual junk food is creating a spiritual sickness in the church. In the American church, at least, there is now generational, systemic, institutional error. Our institutions have taught these things for so many generations now. They've become part and parcel of the church and almost extremely difficult to point out or weed out. Paul, you know, Paul uses the word when he says, be be careful not to be taken captive. The word is really kidnapped. It's a very, like, blunt word with the idea of someone being accosted and taken by force uh, and held captive by these false ideals that, uh, that keep the people away or that impede or diminish our relationship and our strength in Jesus. This is that strong word. So, uh, man, it's a big deal. You know, it's, it is so important. It is so important to be discerning in the body, to to pick churches that understand the priority of revelation and the centrality of Jesus. Uh, 
uh, because it's not always the case. And so what does that look like? What does that look like? Second part is this, the spiritual nourishment we receive in Christ. The spiritual nourishment we receive in Christ. Uh, confession, I've confessed this before, but I love junk food. I mean, junky junk food. Uh, I, you know, I am uh, maybe not like the worst of fast food kind of stuff, but like empty calories and crunchy stuff, that's my thing, man. I am like to have the spiritual gift of eating myself sick on those little like bags of chips at our, at our community group. Nisa buys this big box of like chips that you put in a kid's meal. And I'm like eight or 10 in before I even realize that I'm like v- almost nauseous, uh, you know, or uh, like, you know, like th- we and Pascal went to dinner the other night. We ordered, I ordered the blooming onion, right? I'm like plowing through this thing three quarters of the way through before I realize that I'm nauseous and full and my steak comes out. And I'm like, and I just hate myself. I'm like, why do, why do I do this to myself? Why do I do this to myself? It's awful. And I'm, because I'm eating for comfort. I'm eating for emotional comfort and not for health. However, there have been periods, long periods in my life where I really did eat well. I did eat clean. I did eat for nutrition and health rather uh, more, more than just emotional comfort. And we did, uh, you know, we did the 30-day whole food diet, you know, where you take out all the inflammatory I'll tell you, I, 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 I never felt full. That was bad. I always had this feeling of not being full. Uh, and I would have these like crazy like, you know, temptations. I would be you know, driving by the five guys just crying. Uh, these temptations to, to reach out for my comfort. And yet I lost weight. I gained strength. I had more energy. I had less pain in my body. Uh, I was less depressed, less anxiety, I slept better, it boosted my immune system, and eventually changed my tastes. Toward, towards the end of it, you know, you're like, wow, kale, who knew, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then, you know, I slid back into the abyss, right? <laughs> But I had the experience of it, right? Seeing what that nutritious diet does for you. In the short terms, it can be hard. In the short terms, you may feel like you're not full. In the short term, you're like desperate for like pulling in these other things that that are not gonna help or they're bad. But in the long run, it creates all of these benefits, all of this nutrition to our bodies. That's good. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is called the bread of life? Why? God is set up the physical world to give us mental footholds in the spiritual realities that we live in. And so he's created nutritious food to give us strong, healthy bodies with all these benefits so that we would know that Jesus, in the same way that food, healthy food, strengthens us, Jesus spiritually strengthens us in the same way. Uh, and listen, what Paul's gonna, I'm gonna kind of rapid breakdown of what Paul, uh, you know, laid out here for what Jesus did for us. Two main categories, our participation in Christ, uh, where Jesus suffered death for us, but in the second 
at the cross, Jesus went to war for us. So listen to what he says. He gives these word pictures, from the, um, some of them from the Old Testament. He talks about the circumcision of Christ. He says, we have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by, what? The circumcision of Christ by his putting off the body. It's talking about Jesus and on the cross being like the ultimate uh, reality of what circumcision, the blood ritual of circumcision always pointed to. The blood ritual of Christ offering himself on the cross. And in Deuteronomy, early, early parts of the Bible, it talks about how, you know, we're not just to be, the Israel wasn't just to be circumcised, but they were to be circumcised in heart, meaning they were to be cut off from the world, set apart from God. And as you get towards the end of the book, it says, listen, God's going to have to do this for you. He's going to have to circumcise your heart. And that's what's happened to us. It says we have been circumcised by a circumcision without hands, meaning not by what we've done or what man does. We've been circumcised by God in our hearts, cut off from the world, set apart for God, and that happened because of the circumcision of Christ, his blood ritual on the cross. And then he ties it into baptism. So we are died with Christ, and then he ties it into baptism. We're buried with Christ. In the ancient world, they, would, they thought of waters and the sea as just dangerous and chaotic, right? And so baptism had this imagery of if you went under water, under the waters, you were entering into the, like the chaos realm of death. And by coming back up out of the waters, you were coming out of that realm. And so he says we've been circumcised by the circumcision of Jesus. We've been buried with him in our baptism. Uh, side note, I'm not going to go all the way into this, but see the connection. Paul shifts the sign of covenant entry right there. Old Testament, circumcision. New Testament means the same thing, but the sign is now different. Why? After the blood ritual of Jesus, there's no more blood ritual. Jesus' blood paid for it all no more blood is necessary. The sign now switches to baptism when we identify with Jesus' death by going into death with him, into the waters of death, and then what happens? We are raised, raised with him, coming up out of the waters of baptism and into the new life of Jesus. And Paul says two things. He says that's a past tense event. You have been raised with Christ. We're not waiting in the future to be raised with him. I mean, we will be brought into glory eventually, but he's saying now, we are now raised with Jesus. And it's been done by the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And if that wasn't good enough, Jesus, the cross was also the place where Jesus went to war for us. Uh, listen, it says, it says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the enemy by taking away his weapon. What does that mean? What was the weapon that Satan had against us? Our sin and the law. We had broken the law. And what Satan had as a weapon against us was, the, was righteous judgment. He would go to God and say, you must judge them. They've broken your law, they're sinful, you have to destroy them. 
That was his trump card. That was his power. That was his weapon against us. And so when Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross for us, taking our sins upon himself, eliminating uh, our failure to keep the law by keeping the law for us and then dying to pay for our sins, he literally took that weapon out of Satan's hands. Just went, yeah, now what, Satan? You got nothing. He disarmed the satanic host and the only weapon they had against us. And here and in the, re- the reading in Ephesians, Paul like pulls back the, the veil of eternity and gives us this glimpse into like the, the heavenly realms of the big picture idea that this isn't ultimately just about us, just about forgiving our sins. This was God putting on display for the angelic hierarchies his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, his everything. And why did he do all that for us? What does it mean for us? Why did he do all of that for us in Christ? Listen to this, listen to this one line. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, stop. Did you hear what he's just saying in that? And I read that thing a hundred times. This week I'm reading it, I was thinking about the sermon, and it just like stopped me cold in my tracks. It's saying that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and the fullness of Jesus dwells in us. What does that mean? That our union with Jesus puts us in direct connection, unfettered, not just fellowship, it's not like we're just friends with God, but his life, his, very, his eternal life, and all the spiritual nutrition that comes from that source who is God is now flowing in and through us because Jesus is in us. And that's where, we're, that's where our nutrition comes from. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our growth comes from. The eternal life of God is dwelling in us and through us because Christ is in us and God fully dwells in Jesus. Jesus fully dwells in us. So we don't need anything else. I mean, that's Paul's point. If that's true, if we have like our, internally the life of God is flowing in and through us through his spirit and we are connected to that by Jesus, there's no breaking it. Uh, there's no, you know, it, it, it's coming in its fullness. We don't need to like add these other little silly things on top of it to get closer to God. In fact, those things, they just take away. They diminish the reality of God's life pouring in through us. So the big takeaways, concluding, here's big takeaways from this. We have a direct connection to God through Jesus. This is one of my favorite things about, about understanding, understanding God and his attributes, is that God's omnipresence, meaning that God is, has the power to be all places at all times, put together with God's omnipotence, meaning that God is all-powerful, putting that together with God's omniscience, meaning that he is all-knowing, that means 
that you have 100% of God's attention 100% of the time. Everybody does. It's not like he's like running over here like, okay, Nisa, what can I do for you? Hold up, Sammy. Okay, hold on, hold on. Sammy, what's that prayer again? Hold on, let me write it down. Tim, what, what was that? What, Gretch? 72 Gretch? No, dude. Uh, running over here, you know, back and forth. Like, it, that's not how it is. God, in his power, being all present, all knowing, all powerful, you have his 100% attention 100% of the time. We're always with him. He is always with us. And we are always connected with him through Jesus. There's no need to add anything to that. Adding anything to that says that that's not true or what Jesus did isn't enough. If we pray, if we think that we have to pray to Mary so that she, or the saints, uh, or the angels, so that they can then go to Jesus and like add some extra clout to our prayers, it's saying Jesus doesn't hear you. But he does. And it promises us that we are rooted by being raised in Christ, united with Christ, alive in Christ. Our roots are firmly planted in the soil of God. And that will never change. And we are being built up by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He is changing our hearts from the inside out. Uh, and we don't, and that's happening all the time. We don't need like to add these like, you know, religious looking practices to it. Every decision you make, every circumstance that you come across, everything that happens to you in your life, God has deliberately engineered those things for you so that with his spirit working in and through you and you growing in, hol in holiness, growing in wisdom, growing in the knowledge of God, all of those things are working together constantly to mature you in Christ. You are being grown. Now some of those things for sure can be like added as in a, you know, to, have to, be help, to be helpful, fasting is good, prayer is good, but not as an end in themselves, as a means as a means to God, right? Listen, it says we are holding fast to the head, to Jesus. Head meaning the source of all spiritual power and life from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, talking about the church and all of us, and it grows with a growth that is from God. It's happening. It's happening right now. You can trust that happening. You don't need to add anything else. Your spirit will get stronger. Your experience of suffering will lessen. Your immunity to false religious ideals will increase. Your desires will, and your tastes will eventually change as we continue to be nourished uh, and, 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 and full with the very life of God that we have through our union with Christ. That is all you need and don't let anyone tell you different. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are truly all we need. 
Lord, we come to your word and we can never, ever reach the bottom of its beauty. We can never understand all of it, that all that it says about who you are, what you've done for us, Lord. It's a never-ending well, a never-ending treasure. So we pray, Lord, not that we would have any new revelation, but that we would better understand the revelation that you have given us. And you've given us logic, and you've given us minds to think, but we pray that you would help us to think in the terms of, of using our minds to understand what you have said and to base our lives on, on the knowledge of truth that you have given us through your word and through your creation. And we pray that every day um, you would grow us a little bit more and a little bit more. And you would keep us close because our life is truly hidden with you, Lord. It is hidden in Christ. So help us, Lord. Help us to be lights in the world. Help us to... Um, Help us to purify the church with these ideals, Lord, and to bring the fullness and the beauty of Christ to the forefront of our worship uh, and our practice. In Jesus' name, amen.